Hi everyone. Welcome to Casual Watch Talk, the podcast from the Casual Watch Reviewer YouTube channel. Join us as we talk everything watches from watch collecting, the latest horology news and interviews. If you're not already subscribed, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Let's dive into the show. Welcome to episode 23 of Casual Watch Talk, and we've got somewhat of a special today. We are interviewing Nicholas Bowman Scargill from Fears Watches. So thanks, Nicholas, for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to meet you guys. I'm really looking forward to this because this is a British brand that I didn't know a whole lot about. So I'm really excited to introduce it to our audience. I'm, of course, joined by Chris. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Evening, evening, morning. How's it going, guys? Now, we were going to skip over the watch obsessions, but having a chat with uh, Nicholas, we think we might do this one. So, Chris, do you want to kick it off here and then we'll go to Nicholas and then I'll do mine? Sure. So, uh, this this week, uh, watch obsession, um, I was checking out the new uh, Casio Protrek. The new smaller, it's got like a, a color bezel and it has the three um, altimeter barometer uh, compass in it. And it's, and it's like decently sized. Like typically, I mean, we had talked about this in, the, uh, in a past episode where like the, you had the original, one of the original ones where like those sensors were like these giant steel conglomeration that kind of, you know, extended off the case. Uh, but this one's sort of, you know, it's, it looks, I mean, it looks the part, it looks like a, uh, all business sort of, uh, uh, digital watch, but uh, at the same time, uh, a little, uh, little cleaner. It's the, uh, the triple sensor solar powered. Um, and, uh, I'm looking for the model number. I thought I so had this it. is a new type where they've gone smaller than the standard outdoorsy ones, is it? Yeah, yeah. I think they did. Uh, they did the model that was a little, a little smaller, and then this one is like smaller still. Yeah. So the model number is the PRG three thirty, and it's like four A, nine A, two A. I assume there's different, but like the orange one, yellow. So orange, yellow, uh, sort of a uh, blue, ocean blue sort of color. Oh, and they're on sale on the Casio website right now for like half off. Holy crap! <laughs> The watch obsession turns watch by. Live on air. You know, wow, wow. <laughs> well, it's in my car, gentlemen, so we'll see how this goes. Well, thanks for that, Chris. Uh, Nicholas, we'd love to know what your watch obsession's been this week. And you are allowed to say one of your own watches, if you like. Well, thank you. I, I, I would. I mean, I, am, I do own some of my own watches, which I bought from the company full price, because we're, we're proud at Fears. We don't do discounts for anyone. We do no sales, no discounts. So all my family, friends, and myself have all paid full price for their fears. It just keeps it seen, you know, simpler that way. At heart, I'm a huge watch geek, and there's always something that's kind of, you know, on my search history or, you know, in my reading list and bookmarks. At the moment, there's there's sort of two watches between uh, my one of them is my all-time Grail watch, or maybe not a Grail, but an Exit watch, the watch that kind of beats everything, and it's from a a Swiss brand called Laurent Ferrier. Monsieur Ferrier set up, I think it was about 10 years ago, and makes these beautiful, exquisitely finished watches made by hand. They make 100 watches a year. But for 37 odd years, he was technical director at Patek. So, you know, he knows his stuff. Um, also, he uh, took part and came third in Le Mans 1979. Oh, wow. Oh. He was a oh. racing car driver. Fascinating oh, that guy. That is fascinating. 
and his watches are beautiful. From he's the sort of guy who who will do a tour, tourbillon, but it will be on the reverse. You know, it's completely hidden from view. It's so understated, so under the radar, but exquisite. And I had the pleasure of meeting him at SIHH a few years ago, and. I was like a teenage girl. I kind of went up to him, oh, Mr. Ferrier, I love your work. <laughs> and, and I kind of did this like babbling of just how much I loved everything he made. And then the, uh, the company CEO, she, she stepped in and with a smile said, uh, I'm, I'm very sorry, but uh, Monsieur Ferrier doesn't speak English. <laughs> and he was just grinning away where he's got this, this weird English man just babbling on at him. But anyway, That's great. so um, yeah, Lauren Ferrier, pr- pretty much, Almost any watch he makes, I would happily take. Interestingly, there's almost no difference in price between steel and gold because that's not where the money goes. The money is all in the movement and the dials. Um, So that would be the ultimate. But the one I'm really obsessed with at the moment is by Vacheron Constantin. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a watch they brought out a few years ago called the 56. And it basically was brought out to appeal to my demographic. You know, it was the new entry-level Vacheron in steel, mm-hmm. 10,000 pounds, doesn't have a as fancy a finished movement. Some of them don't even have a Vacheron own movement, but it's from Richemont Group. But the idea was it's like the entry point, a 10,000 pound entry right. point, I'd yeah. say in inverted yeah. commas. Right. Like. Yeah. But at the same time, before then, their watches started at like 16, 20,000. So the idea is, you know, younger people can start to get into the brand. Anyway, I dismissed it as not being a true Vacheron, not interesting at all. And then recently I've started looking at going, actually, this is a really nice automatic 40 mil steel watch, but with exquisite finishing heritage, the design links back to their archive. This And I've tried them on quite a few times recently and they're amazing. You know, when you put something on the wrist and you go, oh, this is why this is a 10 grand watch that actually is worth every single penny. Um, so yeah, I think anything from Laurent Ferrier or uh, a Vacheron 56, they're both in my, uh, my wish list. The at blue the 56 is, is stunning, isn't it? Oh, the blue is amazing. And I do one which isn't sadly 10,000, um, which is the complete calendar in blue. And it has a moon phase. Now, I don't like moon phases because I just don't really see the point in them. And they're always blue discs with tacky little stars and, you know, moons with faces on. I don't know. It just, then there's never been a modern one. Whereas on that 56, the moon phase on the blue dial is a blue disc, which matches the blue of the watch. And the moon is just a silver polished disc. So it's not gold. There's no stars. I, it's actually quite a practical moon phase in that when you look at it, you just see a circle with a bit cut out of it, which of course is what it's meant to be doing. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, and that watch, I've tried that on three times now. Um, I, I rather guiltily, um, if I've got time to kill on Bond Street when I'm in London for meetings, I will often will go into Vacheron or Chopin or Piaget and go in and sit down and have a nice cup of tea. Um, Vacheron do the best tea, but uh, Chopin do the best biscuits. So <laughs> that's great. If you're ever in London. <laughs> well, I'll finish it off here with my watch obsessions. Mine's a bit of a weird one because normally my watch obsession is something I could afford, but this one I don't think I could afford. But I'm more fascinated by how it exists, uh, which is the Jaeger uh, Le Coultre have done their reverso, but a, a Mad Men limited edition. So the TV show Mad Men 
uh, Don Draper wore one in that series. Although I, I always thought he had an Omega DeVille, but uh, anyway. But it's got engraved on the back Sterling Cooper Draper Price, which was the name of the marketing agency that Don Draper worked for. I, I can't quite work out. Uh, you expect Omega to do homages to TV shows, but I can't think of Iago La Culture ever doing one before. So it's just it, it it's my obsession because I'm just so fascinated by it. It does it doesn't seem like it's in their wheelhouse. It doesn't. It seems like something uh, like like that came from some crazy person in the marketing department and was like, let's do this. And you know, all the stuffy gents are like, we're going to do what? <laughs> That's what it seems. It, like. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, for sure. Okay, well, that we've done our watch obsessions. Now let's get on to finding a lot more out about Fear's watches. Now, I have to admit, in all of my years of uh, watch collecting, I was not familiar, Nicholas, with your brand at all. But now I'm absolutely fascinated by the history. It was a brand that was originally started in 1846. But what I find fascinating is, unfortunately, it sounds like in the 70s, it's along with the quartz crisis, especially which really affected US watchmaking, but that the brand closed down and then you started it back up in 2016. And you're very kind of honest about that history. I I like the way that you phrase that because Chris and I talk a lot about history of watches that were then bought by other companies or started by other companies. I I just recently did a video on Hoyer, but you're very honest about the history and I I really love that about the brand. So thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got into watches and and how the brand started back up again. It's interesting you say that about the uh, being honest about the, the gap. I think it's because fears it's a family business, and I'll, I'll come on to my, my connection to it, but it also is very much the, the typical British family-run business, and that's what happened. You know, businesses were started in the Victorian period, they went through different generations, and then in the 60s and 70s, thousands if not tens of thousands of family-run businesses in the uk not just in the watch industry but across all industries disappeared you know that was the period where you know uh lever brothers who made soap slowly morphed into becoming unilever the massive conglomerate it is today um you either did that or you died that was basically roots and so when i was restarting it i was very much of the opinion that I was sick and tired of picking up a watch brochure, flicking through it and seeing the, uh, you know, the timeline and everything would run up until about the sixties and then it would keep going, but with a blank section. And then in 2000, it'd be like, Ooh, and then we brought out this model and I'm going, yeah, great. Wonderful. But like what happened in that period, you're not fooling anyone. Um, and I've also been very much of the opinion from the word go that, I would rather be 100% honest and transparent about everything we do, which is why on the website, we will tell you where every component is made. We have everything made bespoke except for the movement, but we do our own finishing in-house. But, you know, I want to be honest and say, well, look, our sapphire glass is made in Hong Kong. Why? Because there's only one company in Switzerland who actually makes sapphire glasses. The rest of them in Switzerland are just PO boxes. And I'm, for me, I'm the get rid of the middleman, get rid of the snobbery of saying, oh, it's made here because of this. No, no, no. Let's, let's be honest about where it's made. It's not a 100% British made watch. It's hand built in Britain, but it's not a British made watch. I leave that to people like uh, Roger Smith. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm really pleased you've picked up on that because it very much is the ethos of what Fears does. You know, 
it's I've always said that you know if one day someone wanted to write an expose about the British watch industry you know they wouldn't find any skeletons you know I kind of I dare someone to try and find them because actually I think it is my family's legacy and therefore your view of things is not just about you know the next five years or you know there's no exit strategy it's thinking about the next 50 years the next 100 years and you set the tone today by doing things like that i'm really fascinated i've been watching some other interviews you've done about how you originally started out in watches and you saved for what sounded like quite some time to afford your first uh, seamaster i'm 33 which is in the watch world an interesting age because it means that i count as a sort of young enthusiast as opposed to someone who's you know been buying watches when you could buy you know manual wine daytonas for a fraction of what they go for today but you know when i started getting into watches i was a teenager and the only place you would find information was maybe you know the odd article in how to spend it magazine with the financial times and then when i was uh, a bit older i, I got a, a, a my first job at 15 working in a in a department store and that was when I really started getting interested in watches. And this was, this was pre-Hodinky, pre-watch blogs. Yes, there were forums, but I found forums just full of lots of angry people, to be honest. So I was like, <laughs> you know, it was very difficult to find just raw information without opinion. Um, and also, most watch companies didn't have websites. I mean, this is the crazy thing. You know, we're, we're now, through the current pandemic, talking about like, oh, these brands are now selling online. Yeah, you go back to 2003, 2004, like Rolex.com had just launched. Patek didn't have a website. You know, if you wanted a brochure, you would literally have to call up to a, a very expensive phone line to Switzerland and say, could you post me a brochure? Um, I've still got those brochures today. I requested Which 15-year-old you did, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and, you know, so you, you, you find the information. And I, I settled on the Amiga Seamaster GMT with the white dial, um, which nowadays is lucky enough to have its own nickname. It's called the Great White. And it's a beautiful watch, absolutely stunning watch. And it was, it was a toss-up between that and the Explorer 2 with the polar white dial. And bizarrely, the, the Explorer 2 was only a few hundred pounds more expensive. Bearing in mind, the Amiga, brand new from an AD, was... £1,330. So less than £1,500. And the Explorer was like, I don't know, £1,600. I mean, we're, we're talking at the time ridiculous sums of money. Who spends £1,000 on a wristwatch? Like, that's ludicrous. That's crazy people. Um, of course, you fast forward to today and, you know, not being flippant about it, but Certainly, if you're into watches very quickly, you can go like, okay, yeah, well, that's like 800 pounds or a thousand. Yeah, yeah, you start to write it off, yeah, real quick. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, well, as we're talking about the watch obsessions, there I am going talking about 40 grand watches, yeah. like, oh, yes, this is what I'm obsessed with. Please bear in mind, I have absolutely got nowhere near that kind yeah, of cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's, yeah, it's funny. And I, I go back to that period and I decided, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for this. So I ended up, um, it took two years to buy that watch. Uh, from 16 to 18, I did a Saturday job, a Sunday job. I uh, helped out cutting grass at my, you know, my, my parents' home. Um, I did some freelance graphic design work. And this is while I was also doing my A-levels at high school. You know, um, I've always been a, a, you know, a sucker for punishment. I've always wanted to do that. But before I turned 18, I bought that watch. And it was incredible. I mean, what an experience. And 
I think that feeling, I still remember that feeling of walking into school. I mean, I was this 18-year-old kid walking into school wearing a 1,300-pound watch that I bought myself, you know, um, having to ask my parents if they could put it on their home insurance, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that feeling is the same feeling that I think I try to describe to people today whenever you buy a watch, like when people talk about loving it, it's that feeling that it just makes you stand a little bit taller, mm -hmm. your shoulders back, your head high. And it's not arrogance. It's not overconfidence. It's just, it makes you feel good inside. And yeah, that watch, I loved it. And I, I wore it for university. I wore it uh, through my first job interviews uh, when I got married. Um, I slowly stopped wearing it when I joined Rolex because you were sort of discouraged from wearing uh, a watch that didn't carry the coronet. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I restarted Fears, I needed money. So pretty much anything that wasn't screwed down in our in our flat got sold and the watch was sold. And I think my desk chair and my printer are, are, are the result of that. Um, and I miss it. I miss it now because I, I'm now in a, a position where I could afford to keep that watch. I, I miss it. But at the time, it had to go along with my whole collection. Uh, interesting that you would, you know, pour yourself into that, sell everything in order to, uh, into, in order to get this going. It was in uh, 2016 that you got it started again? Yes. So only four years ago. And uh, at the time, I, I, I sold the Amiga, I sold other watches, loads of different possessions and, you know, uh, prepared myself from leaving five years of Rolex, a very stable job with a good salary to basically having no money and no savings at all. Um, but I'd always said to myself, the one thing I wouldn't sell, the one thing I would keep would be while I was at Rolex, I was very lucky to be able to buy my Grail watch, which was a watch I'd wanted since I was eight years old, which was a day date. And we were, we were lucky enough to get a, a bit of staff discount, which was meant that it was the only opportunity I'd ever have to buy a brand new day date. So I was able to specify the exact watch and have it built effectively to order. Mm. So I went for a 36 millimeter white gold with a smooth bezel on a president bracelet, white baton dial. So it was the most underrated, under like the radar, 150 grams solid gold watch you'd ever see. I mean, it was and I wore that watch every day for two years. And I, when I say every day, I mean, I would on a Sunday go to the pub in my ripped jeans I'd had from uni and an old rugby <laughs> shirt. And yet I'd have this like ridiculous watch on, but no one knew what it was because it didn't look like a Rolex because it didn't have a fluted bezel. And I'd said I'd keep that watch. And then in 2016, uh, while I left Rolex in, in February, and then I launched in november and while i was setting everything up and starting to buy things in for the company um i'd already placed orders for you know watch dials cases you know all of that everything while that was all happening uh the uk had the referendum deciding whether it wanted to leave the eu or not oh, yeah that's right. and we all, we all know how that went yep. <laughs> and my immediate this was this was in a this was sort of a precursor to realizing that when you run a business things can come out of nowhere the next morning, you know, everyone's talking about, oh my goodness, we didn't expect this result. Da, da, da. I'm looking at the exchange rate. I'm realizing that all of my outstanding invoices have gone up by eight and a half thousand pounds because of the exchange rate. And I've already spent all of my startup capital. So Fears was founded 
with all of my own money. I don't have any investors. I own 100% of the business. And I hadn't taken out any loan to do it. And I'm suddenly looking into the barrel of a, of, of a shotgun going, well, how on earth am I going to pay these invoices? And within a second, I just looked at the Rolex and was like, well, I have to sell it like right now. And I called up watch dealers who I, f- I was friends with in London. And they said, you've got to be joking. Like now is the absolute worst right. time to sell. Right. It's like, it's like getting rid of your 401k. You know, it's like that <laughs> right, day. Exactly. You're, like, what are you, you're going to take a bath on it and you're going to pay 50%. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it was just like, but I said, well, and I ended up going to all these watch dealers, literally up and down in London, just saying, look, how much will you give me? And they're like, well, you know, how quickly do you need the money? I was like, cash today I, I don't need a bit of credit i need money on it right now and in the end i sold it for pennies on the pound uh, i mean i lost this was a two-year-old rolex it had the full five-year guarantee from rolex i even came with very rarely the guarantee card rather than a retailer was stamped rolex wow. uk so it was a direct sale watch I had all the um, printouts of my correspondence with the sales manager building the watch, specking it. So, I mean, you talk box and papers, this thing had everything, you know. Um, and I sold it within a heartbeat. I didn't think about it. And actually, when I, one of the personal Fears watches I own is Redcliffe Number 1, which was the very first Fears watch to carry the Fears name in 40 years. And I bought it myself. And even today, when I put that watch on, I don't regret yeah. it. Nice. That's worth that watch, which is quartz, stainless steel, you know, it's worth so much more than an 18 carat solid gold. It's a fascinating story. I'm really interested to know how you suddenly decided you were going to start the brand up again. Was this something that was always discussed within the family? Was this with its stories sort of passed round about the time when you owned a a watch company because my my wife uh, her grandparents owned uh, a handbag factory amusing enough and i've often thought of the idea of i wonder if that brand whether that brand could be started up again what was that decision like for you to start it up again well so it was very interesting in your uh, your intro just now you were saying like you know it's a brand you you weren't aware of at first well you and me both I, it was only in 2014 that i became aware oh, of oh, this oh interesting oh. so i mean when i I'll give you a very, very brief CV. So I, I, I've been through all kinds of different careers. So I went to university. I studied economics. Um, this was in the mid-noughties. I was going to become an investment banker. I did an internship with Deutsche, and I was going to work there. Um, and then I graduated in 2008. The summer of 2008, as the entire world that I thought I was going to work in blew up in my face. Crisis number one, yeah, say, and then yeah. you can add Brexit yeah, as crisis number say, yeah. two, and what we're going through at the moment is crisis number three. So, <laughs> you know, when they write the story in the future about the Fearses or the Bowman Scargills, when they write that book, it will be uh, talking about the crises I've gone through. But anyway, the I, I scrambled around for a new job because um, I wasn't bright enough to hold on to my prospects. So I ended up working um, in public relations. I worked for a PR company doing marketing, and it was a great job. But after three years. Being dyslexic, I realized I had a natural like ceiling to how much I could you know, actually do in the job. And I started thinking, right, I want to do something more practical, something with my hands. Um, and I did that thing. At, you know, at 23, 24 years old, I sat down and pretended I was seven years old. What do I want to be when I'm older? Yeah. You know, I, before you start thinking about mortgages and family and like commitments, like if I could be anything in the world, what is it? I came down to my two passions, watches 
and trains. And so on the piece of paper was become a watchmaker or become a train driver or for you guys in the States, train engineer, yeah, right, you know, right. so they were the two career paths. And I researched them both, realized that I really was appealed to drawn to watchmaking, wrote off a, a CV and a two page covering letter to all the watch companies who had uh, workshops in the UK and said to them, look, this is why I, it's a natural career progression going from public relations and marketing to watchmaking. <laughs> um, and while I was doing this, my, my family said, well, you know, it must be in the blood because your great grandfather was a watchmaker and so was his father, you know? Wow. And so I was like, ah, oh, okay. You know, this interest in watches, it must come from somewhere. What they hadn't explained to me at that point, And I assumed these guys were like, you know, your independent watchmaker, the guy, you know, who works on his own in his attic, you know, doing repairs. What they hadn't told me was these guys were also, as well as being a watchmaker, they were also managing director of the West of England's largest watchmaker. That didn't come until a few years later. So I'm at Rolex. I'm loving the job, doing my apprenticeship. Great place to work for. Honestly, when you work for Rolex, you, you realize it's an incredibly humble company. That humbleness can be seen as arrogance, but um, so much respect for them. If there is anyone from Rolex is listening, I'll take my paycheck. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've always had a little bug of wanting to maybe one day do my own thing. And I expressed this to my parents one Sunday lunch saying, look, maybe one day I might want to do my own business, but I don't actually know what it would be in, whether it's watches or something else. I don't know. And my mum, sort of jokingly, as she's serving the roast potatoes for Sunday lunch goes, well, why don't you restart the family watch company? You know, as, as mothers are, are very prone to do. <laughs> and you're right. It's like the obvious answer. You're like, well, of the, course. The obvious of course, answer. Right, but the, yeah. the moment where the light bulbs yeah. go on and you're just like, sorry, what? And then she kind of goes up and finds an old photo album and it has an old advert from the 40s showing these watches. And I'm like, okay, these guys weren't just independents. They were actually wow. like, yeah you know, they, they, they ran this brand. And so literally on the train journey back into London that evening, I started like Googling and found very little, started looking on eBay. And then it was over the following months, I started thinking, you know, I, I couldn't get the idea out of my head. Like, what if, what if I did this? What if I threw away all my job security and changed my nice lifestyle and actually was foolish enough to do this? I worked at Rolex as an apprentice in the workshop. I didn't work in watch design. I didn't work in watch marketing or the operations. Like I did not know how to start a watch company. And actually back then, this is pre really Kickstartery or catalog brands coming, you know, micro brands weren't really a thing in 2014. Yes. Like right. yeah, they were the odd brands out there, but they, they, they weren't the sort of micro brand you might refer to today. So there weren't people there weren't podcasts, there wasn't Facebook groups. It, it was very difficult to find information. But I started Googling, started putting it together. And then in uh, the end of 2014, I decided, right, I'm going to incorporate a company. So I reincorporated the Fears Watch Company Limited. And it was sort of a, okay, well, if this doesn't go anywhere, then all I does, it costs 13 pounds to start a company. Like, you know, it's, it's not a huge investment. But suddenly I found that I had a a certificate of incorporation until the day I left Rolex until the day uh, six months after that the company launched I carried that certificate in my breast pocket of my jacket every single day <laughs> and it was my like this is here this is this could become a thing and there are so many points of 
where you could have, I could have just stopped and said, you know what, I've only, I would only have lost X amount of money and time. And you know, if I decide to stop now, and I just kept finding myself, I kept going. Yeah. It's, I was like that crazy, you know, the guy on the night out who knows that the fourth or fifth beer is, is going to be the one that will mean the evening is going in one direction. You know, that moment where you're like, I should just I should go out. I should get yeah. the last train out. <laughs> but no, I just kept going. I kept going up to the bar and getting another gin and tonic and going, sod it, let's do this. Let's make this happen. Um, and then before long, I found myself actually going to Switzerland and meeting suppliers. And I had a business card and I was talking to people and when you also realize it's how you present yourself, I'm there and I'm still working at Rolex thinking maybe this might not even happen. And they're going, okay, so when would you be wanting delivery? Like, and, and so how would this work? And you think, oh, wow, they think I'm setting up a watch company. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I am setting, you know, and it, it sounds so on reflection, it sounds so naive. You know, we've been trading now for nearly four years and it's, there were so many points where I could have stopped. And I just found myself, I kept going and I kept going and I kept being drawn down this road. And then I suddenly found myself handing in my notice at Rolex wow. and saying, I'm doing this. And I still remember my first ever day I worked full time for fears. So for myself was the leap year in 2016, which was Monday, the 29th of February. And interesting little fact, that's why, um, any press photo of any of our watches always have the date set to the 29th. Oh, yeah. Okay. And also um, the day I restarted fears, I was 29 years old. So it was a, well, I, I that. wanted to commemorate that, you know, I did it before I was 30 and I started on the, you know, the first day and the first job I did on that first day working for myself is I called up the UK's biggest watch show at the time called Salon QP and I booked a stand for the 3rd of November that same year. And I was going to launch then. And I basically had six months. Now, obviously I'd done lots of prep up until that point, but I thought actually on that first morning, if I don't do something stupid and foolish, like put a deposit down on a stand and start telling the world that I'm going to do this, it's very easy to kick it into the grass and say, oh, it'll be next year. It'll be next, you know. And ever since then, I've always been the same. You know, you know often when it, you start thinking, right, we're going to launch a new watch, you decide what date you want to launch it. You start planning the event. You start, you know, saying we're going to be launching something and, and it forces you to actually just get on and do it rather than chickening out at any point. I was fascinated. <laughs> uh, I think it was one of the interviews you did where you looked at the Fears names and realized it had that happy coincidence that a lot of the successful watch brands are only five letters as well. And it just balances on the dial. Right. And it's, <laughs> it's such a distinctive name. Like people think when you say to people, oh yeah, I run a watch company, what's it called? Fears. They think it's something that's come out of this sort of like modern direct consumer entrepreneurial world where, you know, I've spoken to some branding agency and they say, you've got to have a name that has pizzazz. And, and actually, it's because the guy who started the company, who was my great, great, great grandfather, was called Edwin Fear. And so the company was called Fear, and then it became Fearsiz with an apostrophe. Then they dropped the apostrophe in the 1930s, and then it was just known as Fears. And by happy coincidence, it's just a nice, distinctive word that sits on a dial. I think there's always the thing where I don't really, I've never seen myself as an entrepreneur. I, I've, I've wanted to do my own thing. I don't at this point in time ever think, I haven't got another business in me. 
I'll talk to, I've made a lot of friends over the last few years with, uh, who run their own businesses. And they'll be like, oh, you know, at some stage I'll do a business doing this or I'll do a business doing this. And I sort of look at it or I'll read like Fast Company magazine or Inc. magazine. And I'll, I'll be like, I just don't resonate with people who are like, oh, you know, a serial entrepreneur and stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 I've got fears. You know, I'm four, four years since we've launched, but like the previous two managing directors so you know, my great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather, they both worked for the company for 50 years. And that's sort of like, actually, what company would it be? And what would it be like if I was still working for Fears, maybe in a sort of chairman or, you know, honorary life president role, but like when I'm in my 70s? I, I think the idea that in the, in the 80s and 90s, uh, this, you know, greed is good, uh, that, that entrepreneur, like, like you said, serial entrepreneur, like, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing I'm going to sell to Google? What's the next thing I'm going to sell to, you know, that, that's sort of like, I, I resonate with the companies that are like, we're going to be here for 50 years and we're going to be around and we're going to support the people that work for us. That old school, you support the people that are, are making your stuff and, and you're just, and this is what we're going to do. And there's, you take that, um, you take the growth forever, you take the investors making money forever, you take that off the table and you're like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to worry about next quarter's profits. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to come out with something and it's going to be amazing. And we're going to, we're going to have some people enjoy it and then, and then see what, see what we're going to do in, in a couple of years. Yeah. The long you know, game so is that, generations, not just quarter to quarter. Well, I mean, that, that is exactly my feeling toward it. And actually, Chris, uh, I was chatting to Sam earlier about this. You know, today I finished my final shift working at Asda, which is Walmart in the UK. So basically two months ago when coronavirus hit Europe and everything started going to freefall, you know, our sales were obviously hit dramatically. And I was in, in Florida on a failed family holiday, which got cut very short because of the virus. And we had to get back to the UK. And I realized that everything was going bad. And I was getting phone calls from other watch brands, you know, both British and, and European. And everyone was just saying, you know, it's a bloodbath. Everything is going, you know, going to the wall. Mm -hmm. And so from, from my son lounger in Florida, I called my accountant and said, look, I'm landing in the UK in two days. We need to go through and basically work out what position the business is in. And when I landed and we, we met up, you know, she ran through it and said, look, you, you, you're lucky. You've got cash reserves. And the good thing is you run the business frugally. So actually, we haven't got any easy things to cut. You know, there, there isn't any excess spending. She said, but that means that the only things you can do is to start cutting the payroll. You know, we, we have a small team. And she was like, that's your number one cost each month. And then you've got to look at rent and all this. And I said to her, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not cutting the payroll. Um, I started sounding very belligerent down the phone. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And she was like, well, well, maybe you'll have to do it. And it was in that moment where I was like, I didn't say this, because you know, but I, I was like in my head thinking, no, you know what? I own 100% of this business. I have no investor breathing down my neck. I'm going to do this how I want to do it. And I said to her, I said, look, at the end of the day, we're going to work our cash flow for the rest of the year, but we're going to work on the basis that if we have no sales, everyone stays on full pay until we run out of cash. Literally until everything else is gone, we will burn all the reserves, everything, until we do that. So she, she put together that cash flow projection. 
I then realized that day that I would take a hundred percent pay cut from the business because that then bought us, you know, extra months of time. And the next morning at 6am, I started driving around Canterbury uh, with a CV, basically handing it in supermarkets saying, look, I need any work you've got because I've got a mortgage. You know, my husband and I have a home, you know, we've still got our bills to pay and I need to get money from somewhere. And so for the last two months, I've worked 2am shifts, you know, picking people's online shopping orders. I get home at 8.30, 9am have a nap for an hour, get up and then work on fears until five in the afternoon and then go back to bed and then get up at half midnight and go off to the work. And for me, I'm just like, actually what that allows that, that what that allows us to have done is the whole team are still fully employed. They're working, they're not on furlough. You know, there, there is still projects to be doing. It also means that something we pride ourselves on, which is our customer service still happens. People still need to get, you know, watches repaired or buy additional straps, you know, so that still happens. But the other thing is it meant that when I got my first, um, you know, after the first week, I realized, right, okay, what cash do we have? I went through every single one of our suppliers invoices and paid all of them early because these are businesses, nearly every single one of our suppliers across Europe are also family run because they're in the watch industry. Everyone is suffering. And I was like, right, actually these guys have to make payroll themselves. So I just said, I yeah, And then I call up, speak to the managing director and say, look, you know, are you guys safe? Are you well? Like what's going on? Just let you know, everything is paid up. You'll find so many thousands of euros in your account. Because for me, it's going, right, we're hitting a big crisis. And actually, the day I closed my office and we closed the showroom, and I'm literally stripping it, you know, taking, not removing everything, but getting all the watches out, you know, getting all the paperwork, because I don't know if I'll be allowed back into That's the true. office. In the yeah. You feel like someone's saying, like, we've got to escape. Like, it felt like, you know, there was some revolution going on. And, you know, we've got to get out. You know, there was a moment, though, I sat in my, in my personal office. I've got a couple of nice mid-century chairs. And I sat down in one of them for a few minutes just to kind of, you know, get my thoughts together. And I looked up and I've got the portraits of the three previous managing directors on the wall. And I'm the fourth managing director of the business. And I looked at them all and I thought, you know what? Sod it. They survived the First World War. They survived the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, the Second World War, when every single premises got a direct hit in the Bristol Blitz. And the business still continued on till the 70s. And I was like, right, you know what? Whatever it takes, we are going to survive this. Now, look, you know, we're, we're speaking in May. We all know this, this pandemic and crisis is going to go on and on and on, sadly. It's not going to be over by Christmas, as they said about the war. But it's a, it's a mindset of saying, okay, throw out all the sales projections. That's not important. What's important is that everyone is employed everyone is safe obviously you know everyone's working from home but also the last few months have really reminded me what is it that i really enjoy about owning and running britain's oldest watch company Mm -hmm. it's that we make beautiful hand-built watches and if it means that you know this year we only sell like less than 100 watches so be it because actually that's what i enjoy more than sitting down and looking at a profit and loss account this is a business it's not a passion project but at the same time, I am thinking about that 50-year mark. And, it, it, and to achieve that, you have to stop and go, there are little decisions we make today that determine that. And actually, my working you know, 220 hours for Asda Walmart 
is is contributed to allowing us to make sure that we will absolutely get through into next year. And next year is the 175th anniversary of the brand. So we have to get through to that year at least. <laughs> it's times like these that it's obvious to me and I and I see it in the company that I work for and, and the company that my wife works for and the, the stories that I hear uh, during this crisis. It's completely apparent the nature and the integrity of companies right now you hear about these companies that are like you know hey you know this pizza shop that's like obviously not doing any you know any you know one's coming in and we're not making the amount of you know pizzas da, 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 but we're going to pay all our employees and we don't care and because they have families and we got to eat i mean that that level of stuff and on the flip side you hear these other you know other giant conglomerations that are like well um sorry you know no health care for you and it's it's sad and it's yeah I've noticed over the, uh, the last couple of months when you hear the stories and, you know, some companies where they just made everyone redundant, they fired everyone. Um, and then in the UK, the British government stepped in and said, um, after a week, they said, right, everyone can be furloughed, um, paid 80% of their pay and we'll pay that, you know, um, obviously long term, the country will pay, have to pay that bill. But, you know, that then meant businesses who had fired everyone said, oh, actually, you can come back and stay. Unsurprisingly, those employees are feeling somewhat like, yeah, 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 yeah great. Exactly. I feel really valued, yeah. you know. Yeah. And for me, it goes to the point with my suppliers. You know, we were we're, we're lucky enough to work with the best dial maker in Europe, one of the best case makers in Germany. These companies, they can't just hire new staff. These staff have got decades of experience, and so it's so important to protect that. And it's actually why. Um, within the first few weeks of the lockdown, I took a, a bit of a, a sort of, well, not a reckless decision. It was, it was fought out, but a slightly unusual idea of doing a campaign. And we basically put out an Instagram post and a newsletter and said, our campaign is don't buy affairs. We basically said to everyone, don't buy affairs, but look at how you can support your local small businesses. The takeaway, the pizza place you just talked about. If you're fortunate enough to say have someone who comes to clean your house or, or does your gardening and you're not having them coming to do that, well, where's their money coming from? You know, there's so many people in the kind of the unofficial economy, the people who don't have, who can't be furloughed, who can't have government backing. Look around you, you know, does your personal trainer are they doing online sessions because you can't go to the gym? There are so many people who are reliant and being affected. And basically, I said, make sure that you're supporting them before you start thinking about buying watches and things. Because at the end of the day, we need it's a whole system, right? You know, it's the economy, it, it all interacts with each other. And actually, you know, I need all of those businesses, those small businesses, to still be running and surviving at the end of this because if they're not, then I'm certainly not going to be able to be trading. I'm fascinated by the designs of your watches. I know certainly the, the Brunswick, which is your current model, has a very vintage-inspired design, but you've, you've updated it. I think the closest thing that a US audience might think of it is, I know Panerai have done these sort of vintage reimagining of their early watches, but this is an even more refined version of that. I'm fascinated to know about the watch that you started with uh, when you restarted the company and then the current Brunswick model for obviously people are listening to this so they, there's not an immediate visual that they can see. It's interesting you mentioned Panerai because uh, our Brunswick model being a cushion case does get referred to like oh it's, it's like a Panerai. 
the fun fact is uh, we actually were making cushion case watches about a decade before Panerai did. We, our first one was in, in, in the 1920s. Um, so it's quite funny, you know, maybe one day I'll, I'll get my lawyers to go and knock <laughs> on their door. Um, <laughs> but no, so back in uh, 2016, I relaunched Fears with a watch called the Redcliffe. At the time, it was Swiss-made quartz, um, whereas the Brunswick, which is our watch today, is mechanical and we hand build it in the UK. And the Redcliffe uh, is named after Redcliffe Street, which is in Bristol, which is uh, the street where Edwin Fear started the business. So I was adamant I didn't want to do the obvious thing, which would be just to put Fears and stick 1846 on the dial. You know, Fears is lucky enough to have been founded a year after Langer and Zunner and a year before Cartier. So we're talking about like right early, you know, right <laughs> at the beginning of, of, of that sort of period. Um, and I didn't want to do the obvious thing. So I, I named it that. The uh, Brunswick, which is our, our, our model family today, was launched a year after the Redcliffe came out. And that's named after Brunswick Square, which again is in Bristol. And that's where Fears opened their export warehouse in the 1920s. And the watch was basically took its inspiration from several watches from our archive. But I was adamant that I didn't ever want to just recreate a watch from the archive. Again, using that word obvious, it's the obvious thing to do. You know, 2016, 2017, you know, vintage watches as they are today, but especially then were, you know, white hot. Mm -hmm. Everyone yep. was vintage. Yep. And it would have been so easy to have just launched Fears with a collection of, re you know, vintage watch styles. and. I would have sold many, many more watches than we have done to date. But that's, that's your one-trick pony. That's your thing. What I wanted to do was something a little different. Um, clever or foolish, we're not sure. But basically, what would Fears be making today if it hadn't closed in 1976? If it hadn't closed for those 40 years, how would the design have evolved? I, it's a bit like looking at a Porsche 911, right? You can compare one from the 60s and one from 2020. And yes, they're different, but you can see the evolution. And I wanted to, missing out that middle chunk, I wanted to try and kind of imagine what would have happened, which is why the watches we make today are inspired by elements. Like our logo is a logo first used in the 1930s by Fears. The shape of our hands, which we've used across every watch we've made so far, um, was used for two decades in the mid-century. But actually, the watch today is very classic. It uses the ethos of what Fears always did, which was very elegant watches. Fears didn't make tool watches. It didn't make dress watches. It made just elegant, everyday watches. I feel what we've created with the Brunswick is as, as good as any photos are, really, it's, it's handling it. And it's that difficult thing talking about quality. And, you know, the fact is each Brunswick is built by hand by one watchmaker. If those one hands build it. It's the 12 hands afterwards that do all the checks and all the testing. And then every watch is finally checked by myself. So they're all sent to me to my office from the workshop and I check each one off and sign them all off. And it's the fact that actually this is a watch that for its design and its build, I believe will outlive any of, any of its owners. What makes a watch that was bought by someone in the 1940s or 50s precious? What makes it that amazing vintage watch that we crave today? Yes, people will wax lyrical about patina and the elegance of the design and the... 
we know that if you were in the 1940s or 50s or the 60s and you bought a watch, that was your one watch for life. It went through all of those life occasions. There was real soul and connection to it. And also, the watch companies were making watches that they knew would be someone's one watch for countless decades, countless tastes and styles coming and going. And that is surprisingly difficult to do because how do you design something while trying to ignore current trends and preferences and tastes and going, actually, anyone can build a watch today that will last two, three, 400 years. That's easy. Like machining is easy to do that. How do you design a watch so that actually the person will connect to it and go, actually, I still want to be wearing this in 2040. I want to wear this at my first promo. I bought this from my first promotion and I'll be wearing it on the day I retire. And that is something which is more than just the build quality. It's the build quality, obviously, but then also the soul that goes into it. It's when you look at things like the finishing, the way it's assembled, and it just there's a bit more character to it. The way things are put together, the way it all comes together in, in the whole. Each watch uh, comes with its own service history logbook, a bit like a car does. Mm-hmm. You know, and every time you have a new strap or you know, it's serviced or regulated or whatever, we, you know, it comes back with a note that basically goes into this book. So you can build up your history with your watch. And you know, in four years uh, we've been trading, I'm the figure I'm most proud of, the two sort of statistics that make me happy and proud of what we're creating are, one, we've never had a watch returned. And two, as far as I'm aware, and I've got quite a few friends in the, in the watch dealing scene, I'm not aware of anyone who sold on their Fears watch. You know, when people are consolidating yeah. collections, the Fears stays. And for me, that, that is absolutely the thing i hope to create because it shows there is a connection with the piece you don't buy a fears on a on a whim you don't just suddenly go like oh i oh look at that i'm just going to buy it and you know look the watches we make start at you know at three thousand pounds so they're not cheap let's get out of the way fears never has and never will make a cheap watch but you know that it is a special beautiful item nicholas thank you that was so fascinating thank you for joining us on a casual watch talk Guys, we'll leave the link to Fears Watches in the show notes. And also, please head over to the Facebook group, Casual Watch Talk. Chris, thanks for joining me again. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Nick. As always, we really appreciate you listening. And we'll see you next time on Casual Watch Talk. Thanks, guys. Bye.